الجزيرة بودكاست. The United Nations is appealing for nearly 900 million dollars to help Rohingya who fled to Bangladesh from their native Myanmar. So, how will the international community respond? And can the Rohingya ever hope for an end to the stateless limbo they're trapped in? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our panel now in Cox's Bazaar, Razia Sultana, founder of RW Welfare Society, a women's rights organization. At an undisclosed location on the Thailand-Myanmar border is Matthew Smith, chief executive and co-founder of Fortify Rights, a human rights organization. And also in Cox's Bazaar, Regina de la Portilla, UNHCR communications officer for Cox's Bazaar. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Razia, let me start with you today. I have heard you say in the past that no refugee camp is a life for people. It's like a detention. How difficult is life for Rohingya refugees in these camps, and how much worse has it gotten these past few years? They are not stateless. They have their own land. Rohingya have their own land, and this is the Rakhine state. And uh, this is the five years Rohingya are now in Cox's Bazaar, and uh, there is no uh, change. And day by day, everyone knows uh, the situation become worse. And uh, recently, you see uh, the fire incident. But uh, before um, the COVID, uh, um, the people expecting about the repatriation, but after the coup, Uh, it's almost finished, their hope. And uh, in Bangladesh, uh, I can say they just live uh, like an uh, animal, for me, because there is no education, no proper uh, any um, skill development, no proper program, so how can they develop their life, even the uh, issue about the uh, livelihood. Matthew, you heard Razia there uh, talk about the fact that she doesn't like hearing the Rohingya called stateless uh, because uh, they are from Myanmar and belong in Myanmar. I want to ask you about that uh, because a lot of your work has documented the fact that the Rohingya are denied citizenship by Myanmar. They are in this legal limbo. What has to happen in order for them to be able to get past that? Well, you know, Raz is absolutely correct. Uh, the Rohingya have an indigenous homeland in Rakhine State, Myanmar. Uh, I, I think significantly since the coup in Myanmar, the National Unity Government that formed in opposition to the military junta uh, has committed itself to uh, resolving this issue, to to recognizing uh, Rohingya. Uh, citizenship in the country. They need to do more to 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 bring that to fruition. But uh, but right now, of course, uh, the the biggest problem facing the Rohingya in Myanmar uh, is the military junta. Uh, but this is a long-standing uh, issue. Governments, militaries uh, in in Myanmar's history, the last several decades, have denied the Rohingya people access to citizenship rights. Uh, and all of the rights that come under it. And it is a fundamental problem. And until that problem is solved, along with a litany of other issues that have now been created by the Myanmar military uh, regime in Myanmar, until these problems are solved, um, uh, the, 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 the struggle will continue. Uh, Rahina, we should point out first and foremost that no matter how long this crisis has been going on, the needs of Rohingya refugees remain 
urgent. I mean, this group is one of the most persecuted minorities in the world, and the situation only seems to be getting worse for them. The UN is now appealing for nearly $900 million in order to better help Rohingya refugees, but you've been coming up uh, uh, against funding shortfalls. How is this latest appeal going? So indeed, um, I think the, the recent fire shows us that um, despite there being a lot of advancements in the last six years, this is still an emergency and it still requires humanitarian assistance. Um, most of the refugees in the camps are completely dependent on humanitarian assistance, meaning that we are launching this appeal because we need to cover all of the services, all of the basic rights, from food to health, to protection, to water and sanitation, to education, to nutrition, so it's a lot of things that we're calling for, and it's over 100, it's, it's 116 organizations, and more than half of them are local Bangladeshi NGOs responding. And indeed, the, the needs are still great, and we are facing a, a funding shortfall. It, it has to do with several things. We are seeing some of the donors stand by, but we also need to recognize that we need to change things. Um, this cannot continue to be business as usual. So on one side, we need to prioritize, we need to streamline, we need to see how we're going to support the most vulnerable, but we also need to start scaling up education and skill development and capacity development so that refugees access also some livelihood so that they themselves can support each other, that they can be self-reliant, that their resilience is built, because it will depend on this, on, on the situation becoming more sustainable for them. And at the same time, it will prepare them for an eventual return once conditions mm. allow them to return. Uh, Razia, um, when we talk about this latest fire that happened, uh, we have to talk about the trauma that's been encountered yet again by Rohingya refugees who, who suffered because of that fire and were impacted because of that fire. Um, you've been dedicating yourself these last several years to providing psychosocial support, especially for Rohingya women in the camps. Um, the level of trauma that women refugees have experienced is shocking. It's, it's horrifying. I, I've interviewed many Rohingya women uh, over the years who were raped by members of Myanmar's military, many who saw their children killed before their eyes. Are Rohingya refugees able to get the kind of psychological support that they need? Each of every uh, Rohingya are traumatized and every day they are facing the problem. And it's not only after the influx, but every day. Look at this um, uh, fire today. But this fire, not only the fire, there are so many things happen every day in camp and what make them and traumatized every day. Even the food, when the food cut, they also, mm. you know, desperate and frustrated. And this is also one kind of trauma mm. because they say we are, uh, we are come here for life, even we are not getting a life-saving food. So where we go, and we are not allowed to work. We are not allowed to say anything. Mm. What we should be here? Why? Uh, Rahina, I, I saw you nodding along to a lot of what Razia was saying there. It looked like you wanted to jump in, so please go ahead. I think she's completely right. I mean, they live in a limbo where they don't know what is uh, what is their future. They hope to return home, but they can't. And they live in this complete in like situation where they don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden they hear that their rations are being cut 
And you can imagine, like they live with $12 a month, it's being cut to $10 a month. That's nothing. One cannot even imagine and fathom this. And that is just one of the one of the cuts that will affect everything. Their health will probably plummet a bit. Uh, we're also talk already talking about an anemic population, high levels of malnutrition. Um, it can also lead to other negative coping mechanisms. We we could even expect a, a rise in child marriage. So we are aware and we are worried about the situation. This is why we're calling for more support, sustained support. Um, and we fear that if, if we don't get the funds, then we will have to make even more difficult choices that in turn will have an impact in the day-to-day -day lives of the Rohingya, which we already heard from Raw as well, how difficult it is to live in these conditions in an overcrowded camp, in bamboo and tarpaulin shelters, where you face maybe fires in the dry season, uh, strong winds and rains that might wash away your shelter in the monsoon season. So there is a lot of work that we mm. need to do to, to prevent this from escalating. Matthew, uh, one of the things I hear most often from uh, the Rohingya refugees that I speak with, uh, they ask, why are they not able to get justice for the atrocities that were committed against them? They say, we have documented this, we have shared evidence, we have spoken to prosecutors and investigators, where is justice? I know that there are various cases that have been brought against Myanmar's military accusing it of the crime of genocide. There is a, uh, there's a case that was brought at the International Criminal uh, Court of Justice. There's also an investigation going on at the International Criminal Court. Your organization, Fortify Rights, recently filed a criminal complaint against Myanmar's military in Germany. Um, what's different about that case and, and how is it going? And why is it taking so long for these cases to play out? Yeah, thanks for that, Mohammed. And we, we uh, at Fortify Rights, we share the frustration with the Rohingya community and others throughout Myanmar that the wheels of international justice move too slow. Um, and, and certainly there are a great number of people trying to speed those wheels up. We have seen uh, a number of cases crop up, as you mentioned. Um, the, the case in, or the complaint rather that we filed in Germany uh, in January this year, along with 16 uh, individual complainants from Myanmar, including Rohingya and representatives from several other ethnic groups throughout the country, uh, was filed under what's called universal jurisdiction. So this essentially enables uh, perpetrators of, of uh, genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes uh, to face prosecution in Germany, despite the fact that the crimes were committed outside of Germany's borders. Uh, so right now we're hopeful that the federal prosecutor in Germany will launch an investigation. That's goal number one. Uh, goal number two would, of course, be uh, 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 the issuance of arrest warrants. And then hopefully down the road, uh, the not too distant future, prosecutions. But there are a number of other universal jurisdiction cases. Uh, there's a case in, in Argentina uh, as well. And uh, um, there's another effort in Turkey. And so this is, uh, this is part of what we hope will be a constellation of accountability mechanisms that will uh, essentially encircle the Myanmar military regime, the junta. Uh, these are people that must be held accountable for these atrocious crimes. And I will just add as well that the Rohingya genocide and the atrocities that we're still seeing on a daily basis in Myanmar, they really do represent a historic challenge for the international community. Uh, is the world going to sit by and watch or is the world going to act and act speedily? Uh, and we do, we are working towards the latter. 
Razia, I know that you yourself uh, have presented evidence to different bodies. You've spoken uh, to the UN uh, about what the Rohingya have faced. Are you hopeful that there will be some accountability going forward, or are you frustrated that it is taking far too long? I, I am frustrated, but in the meantime, I can say I always keep hope because I see um, just now uh, Matthew says um, we are now uh, in the Germany uh, in the case file. So the, this thing sometimes make me hope, but frustrated uh, because when I go in the field level, uh, the situation make me first. But when I come back home, when I reading and I'm analyzing, so then make me hope. Because of everyone is uh, now with uh, not only the Rohingya genocide, but the, all the Myanmar situation, we are focusing and exposing everything. So I keep hope. And um, I believe if everyone we together will go forward, maybe we will find a solution. But in meantime, we have to think about more, think about the Rohingya, especially their um, actual rights what is uh, still uh, not uh, identified, even uh, NEG and other, whatever the NEC, but mm. they are not uh, recognized um, as an ethnic. Mm. So this, is, uh, this thing is very important for us because uh, um, everyone is asking about the mm. federal government, about democracy. Mm. Federal government cannot fulfill when you are not accepting the other ethnics. If other 134 will accept, why not the Rohingya? But Rohingya, the Aboriginal of the uh, Rakhine state. What is the right. Rakhine state? The new name, but it is the Rakhine. Uh, so we are indigenous. Rahina, um, let me ask you about another dimension to the Rohingya crisis uh, in, in Bangladesh, uh, something that I've heard a lot of concern about from Rohingya refugees the past few years. Um, over the course of the past few years, Bangladesh has transferred, I think it's around 30,000 Rohingya refugees to Basanchar. That's a remote island in the Bay of Bengal. There's a lot of rights groups that have expressed concern about conditions there. Um, Bangladesh governments have said, uh, Bangladesh's government has said that transfers are only on a voluntary basis, the conditions are good. Does UNHCR have a presence there? And, and what has the assessment of those conditions been on Basanchar? Yes, so last year in October, the UN, um, signed by UNHCR, we signed a memorandum to, to support the government-led response on Basanchar and to help them scale up the services. We were getting calls from Rohingya who were already on the island, who were asking us to come to the island to provide further support in terms of services. So since the end of last year, we have been scaling up services, mainly focusing initially on food, on health, on wash, on education, on support overall in the, the basic services. And so we now have a presence in uh, on Basanchar. We have a team that works there, and then we have missions that go often, depending on the needs that we identify on the island. Um, the conditions, it, it's different than in the camps in the sense that instead of bamboo and tarpaulin shelters, it's uh, stronger structures. So there's a bit more of a housing situation within the island. The, the refugees feel safe. They can move freely. Um, it is a different situation in the sense that we also see um, more skill development projects and livelihood projects in contrast to what we see in the in the Cox's Bazaar camps. 
Um, but at the same time, it is isolated. And we have repeatedly said that the sustainability of the project depends on the government ensuring that the connectivity with the island mm. and the mainland is enhanced that refugees can go back and forth to visit families for medical purposes, maybe for other purposes as well. And this needs to be strengthened and enhanced. This is currently not mm. at where it should be to make this project sustainable. Uh, Matthew, I, I want to get back for a moment to the issue of, of international justice and, and accountability. Uh, there are many rights groups that have called on the UN Security Council to refer the abuses committed against the Rohingya in Myanmar to the International Criminal Court. Is that simply not happening because of Russia and China? Is that the main impediment here? Uh, it certainly is, and it has been for a very long time. And, and it's worth mentioning as well that uh, it's it's not even a, a veto at the Security Council that that we've encountered, and, and that's been an obstacle. It's 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 more the threat of a veto. Uh, and so we've been advising. Uh, uh, Security Council member states to put forward a resolution uh, that would not only call for uh, the situation in Myanmar and for the Rohingya situation to be referred to the International Criminal Court, but it would also mandate a global arms embargo. Um, there's been resistance uh, to advance a resolution in that regard. Uh, we do hope member states will, will move forward with that. But if I may, Mohammed, I just want to comment briefly on the situation in the camps in Bangladesh. The situation in the camps, as well as the situation on Basan Char, in our view, really constitutes a situation of mass arbitrary detention. Uh, it, we have to call it what it is. Uh, this is a community of people whose human potential is being completely swallowed by these violations that they're facing on, on a daily basis. So uh, the, the justice, uh, justice and accountability will, will be a big part of that. But the government of Bangladesh can make some very quick movements right now mm. to address some of these issues with uh, regard to the right to work, with regard to freedom of movement and other human rights. Matthew, let me just quickly follow up with you. We only have a couple of minutes left, but let me just ask you uh, with regard to uh, the Association of, of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, ASEAN, uh, they've been criticized in the past for failing to respond effectively to the Rohingya crisis. Um, do you think we're going to see them do more? Uh, and, and what kind of role can, can they play when it comes to what's going on in Myanmar? ASEAN has been uh, largely ineffective and, and arguably part of the problem uh, with regard to the atrocities in Myanmar and the Rohingya situation, whether it's a failure to to push for justice and accountability, or whether it's uh, you know authorities in ASEAN states participating in Rohingya, uh, the human trafficking of Rohingya, which we've documented at length, um, and so uh, there there are some glimmers of hope. Um, Malaysia has 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 certainly found its voice with regard to uh, calling for justice and accountability and, and advocating for the rights of the Rohingya and all the people of Myanmar. Indonesia is the chair right now of ASEAN, and so we are hopeful that Indonesia will be able to uh, move that block a little bit closer to a more respectable position with regard to human rights. Right now, the way that ASEAN is dealing with the military junta in Myanmar and the way that ASEAN has dealt with the Rohingya genocide and other mass atrocity crimes happening right in its neighborhood is is, is really, um, you know, it's it's in, it's indicative of mm. this block's inability uh, or, or unwillingness, rather, uh, to address these issues. It really needs to change. Rahina, there are so many crises going on simultaneously in the world right now. I mean, the Ukraine war being just one of them. How difficult does all that make it for you and your colleagues um, to ensure that the Rohingya 
get the attention that they need because so many of the refugees I speak with say they just feel that the world continues to ignore them. Indeed, it is, a, it is a great challenge that we are facing. Um, and there's a crisis everywhere. And, and we just saw it with the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. It's something new and they will also need support. So we are thinking differently and we need to do that fast. So we are tapping into new funds, uh, looking into development funds, looking to work with new partners like the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank. But also we need to start thinking about the private sector. And we have a very nice project here now where we are providing women who are heads of households, who are widows, who were maybe mostly sustaining their family on their own uh, with skill development and with access to livelihoods in the sense that they're learning to sew, they're producing sanitary napkins. And this project is now funded by um, Fast Retailing, a Japanese company. And this makes it easier to find funding. If we can scale up the skill development projects and access to livelihoods, which would benefit everyone, including in, and in particular the refugees, then we can also tap into private funding. Mm. And this will be very important because we need to diversify as we see that other crises com are coming up. All right, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Razia Sultana, Matthew Smith, and Regina de la Portilla. This episode was produced by Jeremy Fleming, Usama Aluni, Fungi Nguyen, and Jimmy Gerahun. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Andre Ustwizen, Linda Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next show. Thank you.